You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. I'm back here in the uh, studio of Gangland Wire. I've got my good friend Camulus Robinson on the uh, Skype. And we will once again put up a YouTube video of this as well as we'll make this into a podcast. This is quite an operation. Welcome, Cam. It's good to have you back. Gary, I'm glad to be here as always. All right. So, uh, you know, I tell you what, folks, we've got, uh, we've got one, two, three, three different recorders going. <laughs> That's right. One, Top two, of the line. Three, three different microphones going. It's, uh, uh Quite an operation we've got going here, isn't it, Cam? <laughs> <laughs> we are top shelf. <laughs> really, Cam? I just I just got back from giving a talk to uh, some kind of a club out here at one of the high end fancy country clubs. They bought some of my movies and my books uh, in, in return for it. They didn't really have a budget, whatever this club was. It was the uh, what was the name? It was the uh, uh, One Eyed or One Legged Ellis Club, and it's named after one of the early founders of Kansas City, I guess. And they uh, businessman's club. I've spoken to a lot of those and told them all about my uh, my adventures when we were following the mob around back in the seventies. I may start getting hoarse before this is over because I'm just coming back from talking for a whole hour. <laughs> mm, I bet they love that. They do. They do. Folks love that. And, and I, I've noticed, uh, I would say, I told my wife when I came in, I think I've honed my, my storytelling <laughs> skills a little bit because it seemed like they were really, uh, they really paid rapt attention even though they were eating while we were doing this, while I was doing my talking. And that's never a good deal to give a talk while people are still eating, but they, they were limited on time. Now, folks, we're still in this COVID virus time. We're, kind of, we're recording this in the middle of the spike, I guess, but people aren't reacting quite as strongly to this spike as we did when it first started. Right. I noticed uh, we have a deal where we all wear face masks if you go inside of a business here, although still people don't always do it. I try to. Uh, I noticed that club, three of us walked in, and we had our face mask on because we really didn't know what the scheme was. And, and we got found the room where I was supposed to talk, and they were part of the audience. And, and nobody else in there had a face mask on, so we took ours off. We're all kind of kind of uh, uh, influenced by peer group pressure on them. Yeah, it's, 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 it's hard to know in certain groups, isn't it? It is, it is. And, and of course, I, you know, I would have taken mine off when I talked, and, and we were going to eat, and people are eating in restaurants, and... We were reasonably spread out while we ate, and I kind of stayed away from everybody, uh, and people pretty well respect that. I just stand back a little bit, and they didn't try to move in on me as, they, as we were talking. So I, I think I'm okay. You know, you, you never know. It's all a calculated uh, risk that we take when we go out there today, isn't it? Right, right. It's dangerous times. Yes, it is. So, talking about dangerous times, we're going to talk about the mob and the teamsters, and this is part one, Hoffa and the pension. And Cam, I really appreciate you doing all this research. We're going to have a, folks, we're going to have a multi-episode uh, series on the uh, the Teamsters because it's a huge, big subject, especially when you talk about the mob and the Teamsters. And Jimmy Hoffa, I didn't realize he would have been this old. He's born in 1913. Heck, my mom was born in 1915. He would have been uh, well over 100. He'd be 100 and, uh, what, uh, seven years old if he was still alive, wouldn't he? Oh, shit, yeah, 107. 107 if he was still alive. He, uh, he started the International Brotherhood of Teamsters back in the 1930s when 
uh, you know, in this country, there was a huge uh, surge of, of unions taking over different businesses. The uh, but AFL-CIO. AFL-CIO, and, uh, the uh, iron workers, the uh, uh, laborers, steel workers and laborers. All of them really started. The automotive workers were a big one that started back in yeah. during that time. Uh, you know, they really had to because there was no real regulation on companies back then. You know, we talk about getting rid of regulations on companies. Folks, if you get rid of all the regulations on the companies and you're just the working guy in there, stand back because they are going to screw you over. You know, the, yeah. the Ford, Ford plant here in Kansas City called the Winchester plant. And then during the Depression, they would have, uh, you know, several hundred men waiting on a hillside, uh, up on the hillside. And they said the foreman would come to somebody and give them some extra work. And he'd say, you know, dude, if you can't do it, look out the window. There's about 150 guys out there. Any one of them would take your spot and do this work. And so but people started forming unions really in, in response to those managers of those companies and, and the company. Mm-hmm. They're going to make all the money they can. And, and truck drivers, big trucking companies were not alone in that. They would make those drivers drive, you know, day and night in order to squeeze more money out of them if they could. Yeah, they they burn the cigarettes down in between their fingers to keep them awake. Like you said, they were driving day and night and day and night. They would hold the cigarette in between their fingers until it would burn them, wake them up. It was just, it was really desperate times when there were no, there were no law, no log books, no, no hour restrictions. It was, uh, I mean, guys were dying out there all the time. Really? So, so Jimmy Hoffa, he's a, he's a trucker. We, I think we've probably all seen that movie. Uh, what is it? Fist? There's one, yeah. or, is that, or is it just Hoffa? I think there's one named just Hoffa, but pretty decent. There, there's, there's Hoffa, and there is Fist with uh, Sylvester Stallone, the, uh, uh, sort of a Hoffa-esque movie. Yeah, so anyhow, I think it was Hoffa that, you know, I've seen that, and they talk about how he's going around from city to city trying to organize different groups of truckers. Uh, but at, at the time, he also ended up running into the mob guys, and the mob guys were of some help to him organizing these truckers. You know, he met uh, uh, Jackalones in Detroit, where he was really come from, and, and that was, you know, kind of the seat of their power. Uh, in Chicago, there was a Red Dorfman, who was a, a teamster who was connected to a guy named Joey Glimco and, and Curly Humphreys, Tony Accardo and Paul Rica. So Dorfman, uh, who his son Alan Dorfman will go on to achieve some fame or infamy in teamster lore, won't he? Uh, we'll, uh, uh, we'll introduce him to the mob guys there. Uh, then in uh, New York, he had John Diogardi and uh, Tony Provenzano, or Provi- Tony Pro, who, as we know, will become part of Hoffa's life later in his life. Uh, New Orleans, he had Carlos Marcello, and uh, he knew how to use those mobs to uh, mm-hmm. mob associations to uh, enforce, you know, keep those company goons off their ass, and, and to do, you know, I think one thing they did, Camden, they. When, when they were wanting to organize a company or they had a labor problem with a company, it was advantageous to them to do uh, uh, vandalism to this company. And the company knew it came from the Teamsters. So, you know, your day-to-day Teamster may not be up for going and breaking a bunch of windows or, as we saw right. in the movie, the Irishman push a whole bunch of taxi cabs into the river. But the mob guys were up for stuff like that. Right, and that's, that's where you see a bunch of the mob guys... Uh, in in the locals and 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 running the locals you the, you know if you if you've got a bunch of if you've got a bunch of connected guys who are actually in the locals connected collecting the paycheck they can run out there and and do a lot of the heavy work that like you said your average your average guy is maybe doesn't doesn't feel comfortable doing 
But they were violent times all across the unions. Yeah, those, uh, they'd have huge brawls with the union would hire goons. What they did, they, we call them union goons. They'd hire private detective agencies who would then hire yeah. a bunch of, of thugs to, to go in and try to break a strike or bring in strike breakers to, uh, to break a strike. So uh, it was, uh, there would be battles out in the, at, the, at the gates where they would be on strikes trying to keep these scabs from coming in. It was, uh, it was tough business and, and tough times. But Hoffa just kept going and kept going. I tell you, he's like the Energizer Bunny, wasn't he? He just kept going and built his Teamsters membership to over a million people uh, back in those days. AFL-CIO merged in 1955. The Teamsters stayed independent. They did not throw in with other unions. Hoffa was very independent-minded. He wanted that power. And that's why he was, even as a vice president, he was bringing all the power up to himself. There were, there were, you know, vice presidents for every region. Hoffa was gathering all that power to himself. He wasn't concerned about other unions. He wasn't concerned about anything except the Teamsters and centralized power, basically under Hoffa. The mob guys were pretty handy if there was any uh, uh, dissidents within the, the Teamsters, too, within the union, or any anybody that said, no, we don't, we don't want to join this union. If, if there was a movement in a company to, you know, kind of a strong, charismatic guy who would then be telling his fellow truck drivers, you know, hey, we don't need this union. We we're, we get along fine without it. Look at what we're making now. We're doing well now. Why? Uh, that guy would likely, first of all, find his car vandalized, and, and uh, second of all, maybe his home, and, and third of all, he himself would be vandalized by uh, these uh, right. thugs that that had thrown in with Hoffa, because those mobsters, man, you know, Cam, that you know they learned early on that there's a lot of power in the union. There's a lot of cash money flowing into the union. There's a lot of people that they can manipulate and intimidate in the union that will not be going run into law enforcement. I mean, that's, and, and working guys anyhow, they just don't run to law enforcement right. for everything. So it's already that code of no snitching and and we'll take care of business ourselves. So that was perfect for these union goons to move in, or these uh, Teamster goons to move into and, and try to get uh, jobs uh, it within the union. That uh, right. makes it a corrupting influence. So, you know, one of the first things that, that Hoffa saw that he needed to do was to promise these guys something else besides better working conditions and, and of course mm -hmm. he would forge out pretty good contracts for the hourly rate but he also got on the idea to get him a pension now, at the time social security had started what in the 30s but social security is not going to be enough it, it, it's not enough for anybody to live on unless they really have a, a subsistence lifestyle so right he, he started in on that pension plan and and what started making the companies pay for the pension plan put money into it it was and yeah. he also quickly realized that the uh, a huge big pension plan a big pot of money also gave him a lot more power in in many different areas of life yeah there were you know these small scattered pension plans all over i think there were i don't know 22 23 different little pension plans that he went around and and this you'll see this later with with a lot of office negotiating skills he was able to get large groups of people on board and he he gathered up these these 22 smaller pension plans and he formed them into the central states southeast southwest areas pension fund what we would know, what we come to know as the central states when he did that he forced the 
uh, companies to give $2 a week. Or, I'm sorry, it was uh, $2 a month, which doesn't sound like much, but you've got almost 2 million members. And they're giving $2 a month per member, whether whether the, uh, you know, and that's, that's across the board. If you've got 2,000 truckers, then you give... $2,000. And then if a, if a trucker leaves and goes to another firm, that just, however many truckers you have, it's not per, per, it's just per capita of truckers. That's how many $2 contributions you give. So you could, you know, a trucker could leave and go to another firm, but basically they were getting an equal number of $2 contributions because every one of those truckers would have a job. So across the board from however many truckers were working, that's how many $2 contributions they were getting, and the truckers themselves could put money into it. So you can see why over time, just a $2 contribution from a, from a business and from the members with 2 million members, that's going to add up really, really quickly and give that huge war chest that uh, that we see. Having that big, power of money, that big pot of money is, is a lot of power. I, and I've said this before on the podcast, you know, I was on the board of the Kansas City Police Pension Fund, and we just hit over a billion dollars not too long ago. And, and you know, the board made the decisions on how you invest that money. And, and uh, you know, we had pretty rigid regulations on any any gifts that we could accept from anybody. Because believe me, Cam, <laughs> there, there are investment companies out there that would have yeah. uh, been happy to finance a, a, Absolutely. a trip for me somewhere <laughs> in, in order for my vote to... Uh, to try to get them uh, uh, for us to invest with their company, and, and so this, you know, corruption is always there when you got control of a lot of money. And, and the first yeah. thing Hoffa did was set up a pension board, but he kind of rigged it, didn't he? A- abs- absolutely, Hoffa was had final control over it. He stacked a bunch of he stacked a bunch of guys, including uh, he, he had Alan Dorfman was on the board. A guy named Bill Presser out of Cleveland was on the board. But at the end of the day, Hoffa basically whatever they said, they were just rubber stamping it, and Hoffa Hoffa had the final say. But it was on the pension board where you start to see these guys who would evolve and become major players in in the Teamsters. Uh, like I said, Alan Dorfman. Uh, in addition to being on the board is when he started up with his insurance company. He was given the insurance company as as, as a reward for his father, Red Dorfman's uh, loyalty. And uh, Bill Presser was, was, was given a large union in Cleveland, one of the largest in the country. So this is where Hoffa is really building his core guys and... Then he's also got the loyalty of a lot of the different locals for the pension that he's built up. He's really, this is a couple years before he he is elected president, but the mob knows he's got this pension. He's putting his guys in high-ranking positions, and he's really, really consolidating his power. Uh, and then there's Dave Beck in the presidency, who's, who's a weaker guy. Hoffa's got those mob connections. He's got that mob bank he's putting up. He's already starting to look into loans. And he's really, really very smart about how he's how he's taking over this union very systematically. You know, another thing I noticed in your notes here, and I knew that uh, Dorfman, Alan Dorfman, uh, started an insurance company, Union Casualty Insurance Company. And yeah. That's another thing that these mob guys have, have noticed all along, that if you can be an insurance company that then is, uh, you've got this... L- immense cohort of people who want to buy insurance 
And mm-hmm. so you could be the union casualty insurance company and all the Teamsters officials tell their guys, say, hey, this is this is our insurance company. You know, you, you need any kind of insurance, you need to buy it from them. And, and, or they'll do work out some deal with uh, uh, with the truckers to provide some kind of insurance company or they are insurance coverage. And the, and, the, and the trucking companies know in order to keep uh, the teamsters happy. They need to do business with a particular insurance company or a particular company that you know that they right. these mob guys have interest in. There's all kinds of ways to scam. I mean, there's a thousand ways to skin this cat to make extra money. Uh, they, uh, I know, in Kansas City, uh, in Chicago, they started out. They tried to do a dental plan back in uh, oh, I want to say 19 in the 70s. They were going to do a yeah. dental plan for everybody. And uh, locally, the uh, the dentist that was going to kind of ramrod this end of it here was a guy who you know who was long connected to a lot of different mob guys in the city, and and it was it was really a scam, was all it was. That uh, certain dentists would uh, then would be able to uh, make claims on the dental plan, and they were all and they were steered to you know, the you know, Teamsters guys would be steered to these particular dentists and then they were already owned by the mob. Otherwise, they wouldn't have become one of the providers. So it's, uh, you know, there's just a ton of ways to, to scam. They probably had a, a, a drug, they had a drug thing going. Actually, here's a little side story on the Teamsters union. Uh, I know somebody who was uh, a, uh, like a, a caretaker in a way at something called the Roy Williams Colleges. And that was a uh, group home for uh, young people and adults who were developmentally disabled. And and she would take them out and take them on day trips. Everybody's seen that. All of a sudden you see four or five people that are all a half a bubble off a plum going to a basketball game or a football game or a baseball game. And there'll be one, usually one young, attractive woman that kind of shepherds them along. And and, and she worked at one of those places and, and all their... If they had to fill a prescription, they were instructed that they had to take that to Spolito's Pharmacy, which is way, way across town, and they couldn't take it anywhere else but Spolito's, who was connected to the right. family here, and, and, you know, the mob. Notice that vowel at the end of the name. Roy Williams. So, uh, so just having that power to direct business in, in different places, I mean, there's just so many ways that uh... i think it's it's worth I, I didn't really say but you know obviously if he's if he's putting alan dorfman in charge of uh, uh the insurance company that is by proxy putting chicago the outfit in charge right. of the right and if he's putting uh, uh bill presser in charge of this large union in cleveland that is also by proxy putting the cleveland the cleveland mafia in charge so that's that's where you see and then and then you've got also uh tony provenzano in charge of the local 560 and he eventually becomes a vice president also so you've got that's that's you've got three major families there chicago cleveland and uh, the Genovese family, that, that those are three connections that Hoffa has made right there immediately off the bat. So he's got those three, three families pulling for him to eventually make him the president. So and those, are, those are how Al Hoffa wielded the mob. Well, Kim, you talk about Mo Dalitz and uh, uh, his connections to the pressure families in Cleveland uh, and, and Hoffa, too. Uh, kind of how did that, uh, what was that deal? About? You know, that was one of the early uh, deals with the Dunes or yeah. the casino uh, uh, laundering yeah. money out of the casinos. 
Vilts was a was sort of a, a racketeer, a, a Jewish racketeer, sort of uh, in the in the mold of of uh, Meyer Lansky. And back in the in the thirties, forties, and fifties, when there were a lot of when there were still uh, a lot of Jewish gangsters around, Daylitz had a bunch of dry cleaners in Detroit and Cleveland, and he knew Jimmy Hoffa from from Detroit. Uh, he owned quite a few businesses in Cleveland. Also, he was part of what was called the uh, Mayfield Road Mob. And Dalitz was pretty deep with the mafia in Cleveland. Dalitz and his partners set up the Desert Inn in Las Vegas in 1949. And later they were building a a uh, hospital. About a, a couple years later, they were setting up a hospital in Las Vegas, uh, sort of seeking a little bit of social acceptance, make themselves a bit more, more legitimate. He went to Hoffa for the money, and he said, look, we've got this Las Vegas thing. You've got all this money. It was really Dalitz who, who reached out to Hoffa and said, you know, Vegas is really opening up. You've got all this money. It's a way to invest, and it would be a way to get the families to really help support you. So the Sunrise Hospital, which was sort of a, a mob retreat and a place where you could say, oh, I need to go stay at the, stay at the hospital for a few days, and you could go to Las Vegas— uh, you could use insurance company to to put you up there and really spend your time at the hotel and, and bill it to the, the hospital. So there was the... And then later on, Dalitz was setting up the uh, Dunes Casino. He got a $4 million loan for that, a $1 million loan for the uh, Sunrise. So it was really Dalitz who planted the seed of using the pension to expand into Las Vegas. And so that was the... that. That Cleveland connection, you really see a lot of strength with the Cleveland mob throughout the, the, the 40s and the 50s, where they played a huge role in the development of the mafias. So that was, that was the initial move of Hoffa and the mob in Las Vegas, was through Mo Dalitz. You know, another thing that I want to go swing off too far from the casinos, but Another thing they can do is is the Teamsters can support certain uh, local candidates. You know, yeah. judges judges run for office, prosecutors run for office, mm -hmm. city councilmen run for office, all kinds of different people run for office. And you know, the Teamsters uh, they got a lot of money, and they, they got they could go support a particular candidate. And that candidate, you know, they may probably know to go to to. Uh, uh, Paul Rica in Chicago and say, you know, hey, I need some help here. I'm running, got out. Somebody's putting primary in me. And, you know, so the teacher's yep. in all of a sudden comes out big time for that guy. That's a good point. So there's ton of power, ton of power in having control of a union. I don't know if anybody understands it, but, but the mob understood it early on. Yeah. So, you know, plus, like you said, you, like you've got two million members all over the country who can really sway local elections in, in all these areas. You know, plus you've got that enormous amount of money that can go into construction, that can go into generating a lot of revenue in a community. And the amount of power that truckers had, basically products get from one point to another across this entire country. Every product in this country is delivered by truck. And if, if truckers want to shut down the country, they they very easily do so. That's the amount of power that the Teamsters and the mob that was that's the amount of power that they had with the the politics and the the potential for a strike. And it it was a really it was kind of a a match made in uh, wherever you want to say it. 
but it, it was really uh, it was really something they had going on. This this pension you had an eight million dollar loan for the Stardust, then you had the Fremont four million dollars, and then uh, Dalitz helped Morris Schenker get uh, a few million dollars to maintain the dunes after uh, a few years later. Then you've got uh, Caesars, the Landmark, Circus Circus, the Aladdin, the Four Queens. That's basically the whole strip. And so by 1961, you've got $91 million in 6% interest loans. Cam, Morris Schenker is kind of an interesting guy. I think I told you this one story I heard about him. He was a uh, friend of mine's name is Fitzgerald and grew up in St. Louis and and they have like Irish Irish wards and precincts and everything still in, in St. Louis. And this was this was back in the '60s, and, and this guy's name was Fitzgerald, a local businessman, had a, a service station, pretty successful service station, well known, and and he ran for city councilman or alderman, whatever they call him in St. Louis. But he, and he ran in an Irish ward against a Jewish candidate named Morris Schenker. But guess what? The Jewish Candidate won, and the Irishman <laughs> lost. Now go figure that one. <laughs> Moore Schenker was connected to Mo Dalitz, and Mo Dalitz, I know, and reading up on him, he has always, he, he has been this gangster on one hand, but on the other hand, he wants to be seen as a as a socialite, as, as a right. magnanimous kind of a, a supporter of. Uh, uh, charities and, and poor people really strove for social acceptance. Uh, yes. And, and that, like getting that hospital built in Las Vegas, he got all kinds of social acceptance and kudos uh, from that. So, uh, but he was part of a, a, a mob organization, uh, uh, the Coaster Nostra. I think maybe there's a, uh, a book even talks about the Coaster Nostra. The, the, the Jewish mob in, in Cleveland was, was pretty strong at the time. Yes. Yeah. Ab absolutely. What was their name? Oh, it was the, the Mayfield Road. The Mayfield Road Gang. Yeah. In, in Cleveland. Yeah. And, and, and then you've got uh, a couple years younger. You've got like guys like Mace Rockman and uh, Shonda Burns. So you really did have a strong Jewish presence in uh, in Cleveland in the in the mafia. Macy Rockman was really the underboss for all intents and purposes. More, they were yeah. Going through a might lot as of well. Changes there with that war with Danny Green. Rockman really. He, He's the one that was responsible to go to Chicago and pick up their end of the skim and bring it back. The uh, FBI uh, uh, photographed him several times and, and got him all over the wiretaps uh, going up and getting that money and bringing it back to Cleveland. So that's... Uh, yeah. Uh, it, it was really had a strong Jewish presence, which is unusual. Yeah. We didn't, we did not have that in Kansas City. They didn't have that. They, they had their. Everybody's got their own Jewish associates, but nobody had as strong an association. Right, not as, like Cleveland. It's Cleveland. I don't think. Do you? No, not not that I've not that I've seen. I mean, Cleveland was really like like you said. I mean, Cleveland, a guy like Mace Rockman, who basically picked the boss with Jack Licavoli. That nobody had anything like that. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Chandra Burns, you know, the, our friend Rick Perello's got a book out. We got to get him back on and, and talk about his book on Chandra Burns. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. All of a sudden, the bullets over something, but I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, right. folks, it's a, it's Rick Perello, P O R R E L L O. If you're interested in reading a, a recent really good book about uh, uh, the Jewish mob and uh, their connection to the Italian mob in, in Cleveland. I think it's important to note that Hoffa did get a 10% commission on every loan that <laughs> that came uh, out of the Teamsters Fund. Yeah, that is, that I is think important that's, to uh, note. <laughs> 
I think uh, uh, we should throw that out there. So if there's 91 million loans, Hoffa got approximately uh, $9 million. Now he did split that up uh, a little bit. Probably he gave kickbacks to whoever was, whatever mobster was in the town. So, so there's recordings of people going to see Raymond Patriarca saying, you know, I'll give you a percentage if you can get me a meeting with Hoffa. So they would charge they would charge a fee for a meeting with Hoffa to to speak with the with the pension board and maybe you got a loan maybe you didn't but you still had to pay for the privilege. Hoffa's taking nine percent. Alan Dorfman this is by nineteen the early sixties he made three million dollars in insurance commissions. Bill Presser he established all his own businesses. He had a sports coliseum that he built in Cleveland. Uh, mobs getting ten percent off of, of of everything. So you've really got. Well, you know, you've got Las Vegas set up for the skim. This is the skim's going on the entire time Las Vegas is going on. And you've got the mob making 10% cash off the top of whatever loan they arranged. Of course, they didn't get the money themselves. They arranged it for a front man, like we would see later on in, uh, in, with Alan Glick. There were lots of Alan Glicks throughout the years. Uh, Hoffa's getting his 10%. So, really, these loans are chipped away pretty heavily before uh, before they went to to whatever whatever source. Not only that, Hoffa was saying no to as many loans as he was saying yes to. Hoffa, that was part of what would eventually be his undoing, is that Hoffa was able to say no. I think there was a huge flood of people coming to see him as soon as they heard that there was this there was this money, and Hoffa was able to say no to a lot of them. The, the, the loans that Hoffa said yes to, going up to large casinos and everything, seemed to be good investments, in, and maybe they were, maybe they weren't. It's, it's hard to say because there was a lot of stuff in default, but, but Hoffa was able to say no. That, uh, that whole, uh, everybody's getting a little piece of this action if they right. possibly can. There's a, an Edward Boussieri that was killed out in Las Vegas, and Lefty Rosenthal supposedly told the story to the FBI is he, he started pressuring Alan Glick, who was the one that got the $62 million loan from the uh, pension fund to buy the Stardust and uh, Riviera and uh, Marina and the Hacienda. He started pressing, pressuring Glick to give him a little kick, a little piece of that, because he's the one that set up the meeting originally with uh, Ballesteri, told him to go, and maybe even gave him uh, some kind of an introduction, and, and then backed off of it. And uh, Glick complained to... Uh, Probably, probably to Rosenthal, but he, he ended up complaining to somebody, and Tony Spilatro, Joey Hansen, and Polly the Indian Shiro killed him out in the parking lot. It was a typical uh, shot five times in the head with a twenty two caliber. I mean, that was, a, that was the <laughs> mark of the Chicago hit, wasn't it? Yeah, that's, that's right. See, Hansen already had action going out in California in connection with uh, Tony Spilatro, and then this... Uh, uh, Paul Shiro had a crew down in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. That was yeah, Arizona. So that it all made sense. I, I believe that story. That so yeah, that, uh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, everybody wants a little piece of it. If somebody makes an introduction, they get a piece of it. Somebody else does. Yeah, something, they get a piece of it. That's right. Because everybody belongs to somebody too, don't they? That's that's right. It's Bill Presser, Jackie Presser's father, I believe, and then Bill Presser, yeah. Jackie Presser's father, yeah. who would then. Uh, go up to yeah. the Teamsters himself, just like Alan Dorfman and Red Dorfman, father and son, right, right, right. the Teamsters business, and connected to the mob. I find that those connections kind of interesting. But 
Bill Presser was kind of an entrepreneur. He put all kinds of friends and family into businesses, any kind of business, bowling alleys or bars or, or uh, yeah. sports arenas, whatever he could get, but he took a little piece of every action. Uh, Absolutely. Plus the mob's got to take 10% of that, too. I heard a story <laughs> right. from a guy not too long ago in Kansas City, and if, if certain people try to go into the fireworks business, because you can make a lot of money in fireworks in a short period of time, and mm-hmm. it's kind of a gray market area in a way, and and uh, uh, if you're a connected, halfway connected guy, and you go into fireworks business in the Kansas City area, you got to kick a little bit to uh, to some some of the guys. So I didn't get any more details from that <laughs> other than this guy that told me he said, "Yeah, he said I told him the hell with that. I'm not paying anybody anything." <laughs> and did not go into fireworks business. He had he had a relative go into it for him, I think, but uh, he did not want to be, have those guys coming around. Cause got a fireworks business, you're really uh, you're really vulnerable. I mean, if you, if somebody thinks you owe money for running that business and you don't pay and they're mad at you, man, they can take you out with a flick of a match, can't they? You know, that's damned interesting because Indiana has basically no fireworks laws. I mean, there's a fireworks, big mortars and stuff on every corner up here in, in my little town. I don't know about southern Indiana, but there's fireworks stands on every corner and, and, and Kaplan's and, and crazy, yeah. yeah, crazy Kaplan's and, and black. I mean, there is every every corner in, in northwestern Indiana has a massive fireworks stand. There's whole big chains. They're open 24-7, some of them, in route and all year long. And they're the big ones, you know, like the professional fireworks. Anybody can just walk in and buy them. So if they're, I mean, it, it would make sense those places be all mob connected. I know what they did here. We had a local uh, fireworks businessman that got caught. It was a uh, state representative. See, that's all handled by state statute. State representative named Alex Fazzino, who was a connected guy. He was he was their guy in the state legislature, and uh, they popped him for taking a bribe from this uh, local fireworks dealer in order to to try to uh, uh, change some legislation up to make it easier on the uh, fireworks developers. So, when you got uh, uh, mobs that's got good political connections and they can keep those regulations down, why uh, uh, it's you know that fireworks business is gold. That's one thing they can do for you if you're a fireworks distributor. Is they can help keep the the uh, regulations down because it's really high, highly regulated. Anyhow, moving right along, the McClellan Committee. I can't remember. I remember the McClellan Committee when I was a young man or a kid even, and it was reported all over Life magazines, pictures and stuff about the mob and the Teamsters and Dave Beck. And uh, tell us about that, Cam. You know, it was really. Offa wasn't quite the president yet. What really happened, they were they were investigating organized labor. One of the, the spark that, that lit the, the, the fuse was uh, Johnny Diagardi, who was a Lucchese member, had gotten together with, with Jimmy Hoffa and said, look, why don't you give me, give me the uh, uh, paper to, s- I'll set up seven paper locals. So they're not real locals, they're just, I'm just setting up seven unions on paper and then I'll be able to give you seven different votes. So Jimmy gave him 15 charters to set, to create these fake locals. Johnny Dio gets 15 votes on the, in order to help, help Jimmy get established. Uh, and back in, back at this time, until the 1990s, Teamsters elections were not 
they were not general elections. You were you were elected by by upper management by by the the president of locals and by the vice presidents and the, the teamsters board. So the the general elections you didn't didn't count at all. But if you have fifteen locals in your pocket, that means you have fifteen votes. It wasn't you know there there was no general elections. So Victor Riesel, who was the journalist, he discovers this and he writes about the corruption in these locals and especially about Johnny Dio and Jimmy Hoffa. And this is bad because Jimmy Hoffa was was moving up towards president. So Johnny Dio had uh, one of his thugs throw acid in Victor Riesel's face. Now, journalists are supposed to be off limits, but Victor Riesel was blinded. He's blind. There's famous pictures of him wearing dark sunglasses. The paper union, this created a huge scandal. Riesel's, Riesel's article really did generate a lot of a lot of press but then when Victor Risa was blinded that was that was huge as a result the senate started looking into it so you have senator John McClellan who begins to hold these public hearings but the real issue was you had uh, his his uh, chief counsel was a young Bobby Kennedy Oh, so that's when Kennedy and Hoffa went battled. Okay. Exactly, exactly. And Kennedy, he felt that organized labor and the Teamsters specifically. Now, this wasn't just the Teamsters. This was all all labor, and then uh, these went on for about two years, I think. And so he did. They did organized. They did labor, and then they did organized crime. So Kennedy felt that organized labor was was period just totally corrupt, and. It was sort of of a of a, a, a school of thought then that that working people needed to be protected and that they weren't being protected from with organized labor. He seemed to be offended that that organized crime and organized labor were sort of working together. At the same time, you have these organized la- organized crime guys who are kind of taken aback that Kennedy, the son of a damn bootlegger, one of their one of their former partners is coming after them for for basically them making a living. I mean, there's always been this sense that organized crime guys in a way have a sense that they they are they are blue collar guys and they're kind of looking out for the unions. They they whether they're deluding themselves or what, they there is a sense that sort of a symbiotic sense and if you ask a lot of organized labor guys, a lot of a lot of union guys they'll say no we had good representation and i'm not weighing in on that but but you've you've been you've you've seen that kind of thing where they say no you know i had a good i had a good uh good guy looking out for me and you know he had a prison record as long as your arm bobby kennedy looked like an interloper coming in and this rich kid telling these people their business that's when you see those hard, hard interviews, and he's drilling at people, and he's going off, and he got a lot, a lot of criticism for that, for for yelling at Ed Hoffman, badgering witnesses, and calling them up, even though he knew they were going to take the fifth, using the fifth as like an assumption of guilt. So that's where you see those famous, the famous footages of of Bobby Kennedy yelling and screaming at Hoffa and back and forth and figure a speech, figure a speech and Jimmy's, Jimmy's thick accent. And, uh, uh, that's, that's Bobby Kennedy losing his temper. And, and that's where you really, where Jimmy Hoffa really became a national figure is in those hearings. Unfortunately, you have these hearings with the unions and then shortly thereafter, hearings with organized crime. Organized labor used to be really well well thought of in this country, but there was sort of a change after the McClellans where it, sort of the reputation started to on a downward trend because I think that juxtaposed image of 
you know, you had organized labor and then you had union guys and union leadership. And then they put a bunch of mobsters on TV shortly after that. I think that the reputation, I think that it started to create an image in people's head. And that's sort of when membership, it was, it was still on the rise then, but, but it's sort of, there's been a change in, in public opinion that I think is sort of unfortunate. And, and I've read a lot of things that said that sort of contributed to it. Yeah, that was the start of it. Certainly, I remember as a young person that that was, you know, like they were corrupt. The, yes. Uh, you know, the Teamsters were a corrupt labor union. And uh, from then on, that kind of formed my opinion about labor unions. I automatically thought they were kind of corrupt. And, and they do lend themselves to a certain amount of corruption. And, uh, which I saw in the UAW here in Kansas City, but not, uh, UAW was not on a national scale was not corrupt. You're always going to have some local uh, union stewards and, and that will maybe a little bit corrupt, but not on the national scale that the Teamsters was. It just it kind of Hoffa lost control of it. I think he uh, yeah. was such an egomaniac that he thought he could handle everybody and everything, and, and he did not realize the powers that uh, that he was dealing with with these yeah. crime families that just uh, are willing to do anything. Now he was, you know, during that time he he would have been they would have been hands off with him. I don't think they could afford to to really do anything to him back then. When he tried to come back, is when they felt like they could uh, could withstand the uh, the political fallout of doing something about Jimmy Hoffa. But back then, I don't think they could have stood the. Uh, political fallout, plus he was so well-loved by the rank and file that you would you have to deal with Hoffa back then. You know, he was still on the rise with them and still still working out with them. I don't think he ever really understood the mob. I think he had a, a, an idea that he did, but, uh, you know, I think being from outside that world, I don't know that he ever really understood the danger he was putting himself in. Yeah, probably not. All right, Cam, let's... Uh, Let's go ahead and, and finish this off and, and come back next week. And we're going to start yeah. off with when uh, Jimmy Hoffa first uh, became the inter- president of the International Labor Union, is that, Teamsters Union, is that correct? Absolutely, yes, uh, 1957. Well, wiretappers, this will end the first of a three-part series on the Teamsters. Pull up the second episode, and we will examine the Teamsters after 1957 when Jimmy Hoffa will ascend to the presidency and take over the pension fund and consolidate all the small pension funds. If you're a veteran and you believe you have problems that might be from PTSD that's connected to your service time, call your local vet center or the local VA hospital in your area, or there's a national hotline, 1-800-273-8255, and press 1 if you're a vet. You can go to www.ptsd.va.gov, and this site contains a lot of uh, interesting information and a lot of good resources. When the COVID's over, as we say, when the COVID-19 virus is over and everybody's getting back to work, you can hit me up for a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on my Venmo app, Gangland Wire. I've got my two movies out there, Brothers Against Brothers, The Sabella Spiro War, and Gangland Wire, which is the kind of the story behind the movie Casino, the story about the mob war in Kansas City that led to the uncovering of the skimming information. Got Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Get the Kindle version. You can link the... Uh, I've linked the wiretaps, actual audio from wiretaps, to sections in the book. Good evening, folks. 
Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.